38. 9s The young men follow the peddler's trade, but the Basilica village of Bijano furnishes Italy with many wandering musicians. The Kabyles of the Atlas Mountains go out in parties of two or three in the fall, and hawk every kind of goods, bringing back from their journey quantities of wool for home weaving. The immigration may last for several years, but finally the love of home generally calls the mountaineer back to his rugged hills. The Galicians of the Cantabrian Mountains of northern Spain leave their poor country for a time for the richer provinces of Portugal and Spain, where they become porters, water carriers and scavengers, and are known as Dorish, but industrious and honest. The women from the neighboring mountain province of Asturias are the professional wet nurses of Spain. They are to be seen in every aristocratic household of Madrid, but return to the mountains with their savings when their period of service ends. In mountainous Basutoland, the coffer Switzerland of South Africa, arable land and pastures are utilized as completely as local methods of husbandry permit, and yet the native coffers go in large numbers 28.000 out of a total population of 220.000 in 1895 to a work in the mines of Kimberley and the Witwatersrand. They also return in time with their savings. Similarly the Badics of the rugged mountain rim plateau of western Sumatra emigrate in increasing numbers to the lowlands, and hire themselves out for a term of years on the Dutch plantations. Another interesting and once rather widespread phase of this temporary immigration appears in the mercenary troops formerly drawn from mountain regions. After the Burgundian Wars of the 15th century, the Swiss became the mercenaries of Europe and in 1503 were first employed as papal lifeguards. They served the kings of France from Louis XL till the tragedy of the Tuileries in 1792, and in that country and elsewhere they made the name, Switzer, a synonym for guard or attendant. Till in 1848 the mercenary system was abolished. The pressure of population at home and the military spirit of the Scotch Highlanders once led the young Gales to seek their fortunes in military service abroad, as in the army of Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden. Gorkas from Himalayan Nepal, an independent state, are employed in considerable numbers in the Indian Army today, and constitute one of the most reliable divisions of the native troops. In January, 1901, there were 12.797 Gorkas drawing pay from the Indian government as soldiers, besides 6,000 more employed as military police, porters, and in other capacities. Similarly ancient Arcadia, the mountain core of Peloponnesus was a constant hive of mercenaries. Often, however, permanent emigration is the result, robbing the mountain population of its most enterprising element. Piedmontese, Bergamese, and Friulians from the Italian Alps leave their country in large numbers. Many of them find work in Marseille and other towns of southern France, infusing an Italian strain into the population there and making serious competition for the local French. A proverb says there is no country in the world without sparrows and Bergamese. Geneva, once the citadel of Calvinism, is today a Catholic town, owing to the influx of Catholic laborers from Alpine Savoy. The overflow of the redundant population of this mountain province has given the Swiss canton a character diametrically opposed to its traditions. The Chinese provinces of Chile and Manchuria have been largely populated by immigrants from the barren mountain peninsula of Shantung. Manchuria has thereby been converted from an alien into a native district. Immigration on so large a scale exercises far-reaching economic and historical influences. Norse colonization contributed interesting chapters to the history of Europe in the 9th and 10th centuries. Norwegians who had flocked to America had made a deep impress upon our northwestern states, 
Switzerland in 1902 and 1903 gave as 9,500 of its subjects, a valuable contribution. Scotchmen of Highland birth are scattered over the whole world, carrying with them everywhere their sturdy qualities of character. Even the stay-at-home French lose emigrants from their mountain districts. The people of the Basses Alps go to Mexico, and the Basques from the French Pyrenees seek Argentine. The honesty, industry, and frugality of these mountain emigrants make them desirable elements in any colonial population, and ensure their success when they seek their fortunes in the uncrowded western world. The alternative to overpopulation and its remedy immigration is found in preventive checks to increase. These sometimes take the form of restricted or late marriages, as Malthus found to be the case in Norway and Switzerland in 1799. Before the introduction of steam or electric motive power had stimulated the industries of these countries or facilitated emigration dance, the same end is achieved by the widespread religious celibacy which sometimes characterizes mountain communities. In the Baron Auvergne Plateau of France, the number of younger sons who become priests is extraordinary. Many daughters become nuns. Celibacy, seconded by extensive emigration, clears the field for the eldest son and the system of primogeniture which the poverty of this rugged highland has established as a fixed institution in the Auvergne. A careful statistical investigation of the geographical origins of the Catholic priesthood in Europe might throw interesting light on the influences of environment. The harsh conditions of mountain life make the monastery a line of least resistance, while geographical isolation nourishes the religion's nature and benumbs the intellectual activities. It is in the corrugated highland of Tibet, chilled to barrenness by an elevation of 12.000 feet or more 4,000 meters, sterile and treeless from aridity, carved by cannon-cutting streams into deep gorges offering a modicum of arable soil for irrigation that monasticism has developed into an effective system to keep down population. Buddhism, with its convents and lamasaries, naturally recommended itself to a country where asceticism was obviously expedient. The world shows nowhere else so large a celibate class. In Tibet, monks are estimated at 175.000 to 500.000 in a total population of 3 millions. Archibald Little estimates their number at one-third of the total male population. Durga, which is the most productive district both agriculturally and industrially of eastern Tibet and is also most densely inhabited, counts at least 10.000 lamas in a total population of about 42.000. Not less than one-sixth of the inhabitants of Ladakh are in religious houses as monks and nuns. Families in Tibet are small yet each devotes one or more children to convent or monastic life. In western Tibet, especially about Taklakot in the Himalayan border, one boy in every family is invariably devoted to the priesthood, and one or more daughters must become nuns, but the nun generally resides with her family or lives in some monastery with unspeakable results. The Tibetans seem to be enthusiastic Malthusians, with all the courage of their convictions. Religious celibacy among them is only an adjunct to another equally effective social device for restricting population. This is the institution of polyandry, which crops out in widely distributed mountain regions of limited resources, just as it appears not infrequently in primitive island societies. Its sporadic occurrence in extensive lowlands, as among the Waras of Guiana and certain tribes of the Orinoco, is extremely rare, as also its occasional appearance among pastoral steppe dwellers. Like the Hogtots and Damaras, it is often associated with polygamy where wealth exists, and is never the exclusive form of marriage, yet its frequency among mountain peoples is striking. 
Strabo describes fraternal polyamory as it existed in mountainous Yemen, there among the Semitic people, as today in Mongolian Tibet and among the aboriginal totas of the Nilgiri Hills in peninsular India. The staff of one husband left at the door of the house excluded the others. In modern times the institution is found throughout Tibet, and in the Himalayan and sub-Himalayan districts adjoining it, as in Ladakh, Kunawar, Kumaon, Garhul, Spini, Sirmar, among the Miris, Daflas, Abers and Butias occupying the southern slope of the Himalayans eastward from Sikkim, and the Burmese tribes of the Kaja Hills just to the south. The same practice occurs among the Kaorgs of the Western Ghats, among the Nyers at the coastal Piedmont of this range, among the Totas of the mountain stronghold known as the Nilgiri Hills peaks 8,000 feet or 2630 meters, and it crops out sporadically among certain mountain Bantu tribes of South Africa. There seems little doubt that polyandry, as Herbert Spencer maintains, has been adopted as an obvious and easy check upon increase of population in rugged countries. It is generally coupled with other preventive checks. In the Nilgiri Hills, as we found also to be the case on many Polynesian islands, it is closely associated with female infanticide. The totas in 1867 showed a proportion of two men to one woman, but later, with the decline of infanticide under British rule, a proportion of 100 men to 75 women, and a resulting modification of the institution of polyandry. It may well be that the paucity of women suggested this form of marriage, whose expediency as an ally to infanticide in checking population later became apparent. The totas are a very primitive folk of herdsmen, living on the produce of their buffaloes, averse to agriculture, though not inhibited from it by the nature of their country, therefore prone to seek any escape from that uncongenial employment and relying on the protected isolation of their habitat to compensate for the weakness inherent in the small number of the tribe. Throughout Tibet and Ladakh polyandry works hand in hand with the lamasaries in limiting population. The conspicuous fact in Tibetan polyandry is its restriction to the agricultural portion of the population. The pastoral nomads of the country, depending on their yaks, sheep and goats, wandering at will over a very wide, if desolate territory, practice monogamy and polygamy. The sedentary population, on the other hand, is restricted to tillable lands so small that each farm produces only enough for one family. Subdivision under a divided inheritance would be disastrous to these dwarf estates, especially owing to possible complications growing out of irrigating rights. Polyandry leaves the estate and the family undivided, and by permitting only one wife to several fraternal husbands restricts the number of children. It does this also in another way by diminishing the fertility of the mothers, for all travelers comment upon the paucity of children in polyandrous families. Westermark lays stress upon the fact that polyandry prevails chiefly in sterile countries. He regards it less as a conscious device to check increase of population than a result of the disproportion of males to females in polyandrous communities. The preponderance of male births he attributes to the excessive endogamy bordering on inbreeding which tends to prevail in all isolated mountain valleys, and also, as a possibility, to the undernourished condition of the parents caused by scanty food supplies, which do seem found to be productive at a high percentage of male births in proportion to female. The motive of restricting population seems entitled to more weight than Westermark conceives to it for he slurs over the fact that in Tibet polyandry gives rise to a large number of superfluous women who fill the nunneries, while in the Nilgiri Hills redundant females were eliminated by infanticide. The fact seems to be that in the institution of polyandry we had a social and psychological effect of environment, reinforced by a physiological effect, 
a comparison of social conditions in the adjoining provinces of Baltistan and Ladakh, which together comprise the Himalayan Valley of the Indus, reveals the character of polyandry as a response to geographic environment. Both provinces are inhabited by a Mongolian stock, but the Ladakhi living on the uppermost stretch of the basin near Tibet are Buddhists and polyandrists, while the Baltis farther down the valley are Muslim and polygamists. The Baltis, with their plurality of wives and numerous children, are wretchedly poor and live in squalor on the verge of starvation, but as the elevation of their valley ranges only from 4,000 to 8,500 feet, they are inured to heat, and therefore emigrate in large numbers to the neighboring Mohammedan province of the Punjab, where they work as coolies and navvies. The Ladakhis, on the other hand, living 9,000 to 14.000 feet above the sea, die of bilious fever when they reach the lowlands, cut off from emigration. They curtail population by means of polyandry and lamasaries. Consequently they show signs of prosperity, are well-fed, well-clothed and comfortably housed. Baltistan's social condition illustrates in a striking way the power of an ideal like an alien creed, assimilated as the result of close vicinal location, to counteract for a time the influences of local geographic conditions. The less civilized mountain peoples, whose tastes or low economic status unfit them for immigration, Solve the problem of a deficient food supply by raiding the fields and stores of their richer neighbors. Predatory expeditions fill the history of primitive mountain peoples, and of the ancient occupants of highland regions which are now devoted to honest industry. The ancient alpine tribes were one and all, from the Mediterranean to the Danube, poor and addicted to robbery. As Strabo says, he analyzes their condition with nice discrimination. The greater part of the Alps, especially the summits of the mountains inhabited by robbers, are barren and unfruitful, both on account of the frost and the ruggedness of the land, because of the want of food and other necessaries. The mountaineers have sometimes been obliged to spare the inhabitants of the plains, that they might have some people to supply them. The freebooters usually descended into the lowlands of Italy, Gaul and Helvetia, but the past peoples lay in wait for their prey on the mountain roads. Strabo described the same marauding habits arising from the same cause among the mountaineers of northern Spain the Balkan Range, and the highlands encircling the Mesopotamian plains. Hunger is usually the spur. The tribesmen who inhabit the Hunza Gorge were notorious robbers till their recent conquest by the British. Despite the most careful terry stillage, their country was much overpopulated. The supply of grain was so inadequate, that during the summer the people subsisted wholly on fruit, reserving the grain for winter use. Therefore, when early summer opened the passes of the Karakoram and Himalayan ranges, and caravans began to move over the trade route between Kashmir and Yarkand. When the Kyrgyz nomads from the plains sought the pastures of the Pamir, the Hunza tribesmen found raiding caravans and herds, and pillaging the Gilgit Valley of Baltistan the easiest means of supplementing their slender resources. Hardy mountaineers as they were, and born fighters, they always conducted their forays successfully, and returned to the shelter of their fastnesses, laden with plunder and driving their captive flocks before them. The perpetual menace of these Hunza raids caused large districts in the Gilgit Valley to be abandoned by their inhabitants, and cultivated land to elapse into a wilderness, while the Kilas to the south pillaged the Aster Valley of Baltistan, carrying away crops and cattle, enslaving women and children. Marauding propensities are marked among all retarded mountain peoples of modern times. The cattle-lifting clans of the Scotch Highlands, who preyed upon the lowlands, had their counterpart in the Patans of the Suleiman and Baluch mountain border who, till curbed by the British power in India, 
systematically pillage the plains of the Sindh, the forest bills of the Vindhyanan Sapura ranges are scarcely yet married to agriculture, so when in time of drought their crops fail and the game abandons the hill forests to seek water in the lowland jungles, the bills cheerfully revert to their ancestral habit of cattle lifting. The Caucasus was long a breeding place for robber tribes who made their forays into the pastures and fields of southern Russia. Robbery was part of the education of every Circassian prince. While one group of the Abbasinas conferred their chieftainship upon the most successful robber or the man of largest family, the Kurdish hillmen of the Armenian ranges descend with their herds of horses in winter to the warmer plains, where they exhaust the pastures and subject the Armenian villages to a regular system of blackmail. The wide grassy plains about Kukanor Lake, near the Chinese border of Tibet, attract numerous Mongol nomads with their herds, but these rich pastures are exposed to the depredation of Sifan brigand tribes, who have their haunts in the deep, impenetrable gorges of the neighboring mountains, and carefully guard all the approaches to the same. They are Buddhists, but worship a special divinity of brigandage, to whom their lamas offer prayers for the success of every foray. Hence, among mountain as among desert peoples, robbery tends to become a virtue, environment dictates their ethical code. These depredations reflect to a great degree the complementary relation of highlands and lowlands. The plains possess what the mountains lack. This is a fundamental fact of economic geography, and inevitably leads to historical results. The marauding expeditions of mountain peoples first acquire historical importance, either when the raids after long continuance end in the conquest of the lowlands, and thus augment the resources and population of the highland state, or, as is often the case, the raiders call down upon themselves the vengeance of the plainsmen, are subdued, and embodied in the lowland state. The conquest of ancient Assyria and the destruction of Nineveh by the mountain Medes seems to have been a process of this kind, long before their descent upon Mesopotamia, they were known as the dangerous Medes, were constantly threatening the Assyrian frontiers and occupying isolated tracts. The predatory incursions of the Samnites of the Apennines into the fertile fields of Campania eventuated in the conquest of ancient Capua and other cities, and greatly strengthened the Samnite confederacy, but this encroachment of the mountain tribes upon the plains aroused the cupidity and alarm of the Romans, who in turn bent their energies toward the final subjugation of the Samnites, Himalayan Nepal. After the unification of its petty Raja states by the Gorkha conquest between 1768 and 1790, began encroachments and ravages upon the Indian Terry or fertile alluvial lowland at the foot of the mountains, and finally by 1858 had acquired title to a considerable strip of it, which by its rice fields and forests greatly strengthened the geographic and economic base of the highland state. The Malay Hovas, inhabiting the central plateau of Madagascar, braced to effort by its temperate climate and not over generous soil, had almost everywhere subdued the better fed but sluggish lowlanders of the coast. There can be little doubt that the beneficent effects of an invigorating mountain climate, especially in tropical and subtropical latitudes, have helped the hardy, active hill people to make easy conquest of the enervated plainsmen. It is more often the case, however, that the scant resources, small number, and divided political condition of the mountain tribes make such conquest impossible. Their depredations provoke reprisals from the stronger states of the plain, who bring the mountain region under subjection merely to police their frontier. Strabo makes it clear that the Romans, having secured certain passes over the Alps, neglected the conquest of the ranges, till the increase of Roman colonies along the Piedmont Rim excited the cupidity of the mountaineers. Muscovite dominion was extended over the Caucasus, 
both in order to check the persistent raids of its tribes into the Russian plains, and to secure control of its passes. The state of Kashmir, guided by a purely local policy, for years tried to conquer the robber tribes on its northwestern frontier, merely to protect its own border provinces. Then the British authorities of the Indian Empire began the same process, but from a radically different motive. They saw the Gilgit and Hunza valleys, like the Chitral to the west, as highways through a mountain transit land, whose opposite approaches were held by the Russians. Such conquests, whatever be their motive, profit the vanquished in the end more than the victor. They result in the systematic and intelligent development of the mountain resources, and the maintenance of ampler social and economic relations between highland and lowland through the construction of roads, which must always represent the reach of the governing authority. The conquest of mountain peoples means always expensive and protracted campaigns. The invader has always two enemies to fight, nature and the armed foe. There is a saying in India that, in Gilgit a small army is annihilated and a large army starves to death. Hunger is king in high altitudes, and comes always to the defense of mountain independence. Moreover, the inaccessibility of such districts, the difficulty of maintaining lines of communication, ignorance of bypaths and trails which forever offer strategic opportunities to the natives or escape at a crisis, all serve to protract the war. The independent spirit of the mountaineer, his endurance of hardships, his mastery of mountain tactics, and his obstinate resistance after repeated defeat give always a touch of heroism to highland warfare. Consequently, history abounds in examples of unconquered mountain peoples, or of long-sustained resistance, like that which for sixty years under the heroic leadership of Kedimula and Shamil used up the treasure and troops of Russia in the impregnable defiles of the Caucasus. In the end, however, the highland tribes succumb to numbers and the road-making engineer, political dismemberment, lack of cohesion due to the presence of physical barriers impeding intercourse is the inherent weakness of mountain peoples. Political consolidation is never voluntary. It is always forced upon them from without, either by foreign conquest or by the constant menace of such conquest, which compels the mountain clans to combine for common defense of their freedom. The combination thus made is reluctant, loose, easily broken, generally short-lived. It becomes close and permanent only under a constant pressure from without and then assumes a form allowing to the constituent parts the greatest possible measure of independence. The Swiss canton and commune are the result of a segregating environment, the Swiss republic is the result of threatened encroachments by the surrounding states. It out its first genuine federal constitution to Napoleon, a report on the situation in the Caucasus, addressed to Tsar Nicholas in 1829, contains an epitome of the history of mountain peoples. It runs as follows, the Circassians bar out Russia from the south and may at their pleasure open or close the passage to the nations of Asia, at present their intestine dissensions, fostered by Russia, hinder them from uniting under one leader, but it must not be forgotten that, according to traditions religiously preserved among them, the sway of their ancestors extended as far as to the Black Sea. The imagination is appalled at the consequence which their union under one leader might have for Russia, which has no other bulwark against their ravages than a military line too extensive to be very strong. Here we have the whole story of mountain people pillaging the lowlands, exercising a dangerous and embarrassing control over the passes, and thereby calling down upon themselves conquest from without, weakened by a contracting territory within the highlands and a shrinking area of plunder without, doomed to eventual defeat by the yet more ominous weakness of political dismemberment. Mountain tribes are always like a pack of hounds on the leash. 
each straining in a different direction, wall-like barriers, holding them apart for centuries, make them almost incapable of concerted action, and rested under any authority but their own, clan and tribal societies, feudal and republican rule, always on a small scale, characterize mountain sociology, all these are attended by an exaggerated individualism and its inevitable concomitant, the blood feud, mountain policy tends to diminish the power of the central authority to the vanishing point, giving individualism full scope, social and economic retardation, caused by extreme isolation and encouraged by protected location, tend to keep the social body small and loosely organized, every aspect of environment makes against social integration, the broken relief of ancient Greece produced the small city-state, but in the rugged mountains of Arcadia the principle of physical and political subdivision went farther, here, for four centuries after the first Olympiad, the population, poorest and rudest of all Greece, was split up into petty hill villages, each independent of the other, the need of resisting Spartan aggression led for the first time, in 371 BC to the formation of a commune Arcadum, a coalescence of all the fractional groups constituting the Arcadian folk, but even this union, effected only by the masterly manipulation of the Theban Epaminondas, proved short-lived and incomplete, what was true of the Arcadian villages was true of the city-states of Greece, the geography of the land instilled into them the principle of political aloofness, except when menaced by foreign conquest, cooperation is efficient only when it springs from a habit of mind, Greek union against the Persians was very imperfect, and against the Roman, the feeble leagues were wholly ineffective, the influence of this dismembering environment still persists, as ancient Greece was a complex of city-states, modern Greece is a complex of separate districts, each of which holds chief place in the minds of its citizens, and unconsciously but steadily operates against the growth of a national spirit in the modern sense, a mountain environment encourages political disunion in several forms, sometimes it favors the survival of a turbulent feudal nobility, based upon clan organization, as among the medieval Scotch, who were not less rebellious toward their own kings than toward the English conquerors, feudal rule seems congenial to the mountaineer, whose conservative nature, born of isolation, clings to hereditary chiefs and a long-established order. Feudal communities and dwarf republics exist side by side in the northern Caucasus, attended by that primitive assertion of individual right. The blood feud, often the two forms of government are combined, but the feudal element is generally only a dwindling survival from a remote past. The little republic of Andorra, which for a thousand years has preserved its existence in the protection of the high Pyrenean Valley, is a self-governing community organized strictly along the lines of a Tyrol's or Swiss commune, but the two Vigiers or agents, who in some matters outrank the president, are official appointments tracing back to feudal days, when Andorra was a seigneury of the Comte of Virgil. Tyrol offers a striking parallel to this. In its local affairs it has in effect a republican form of government, enjoying as high degree of autonomy as any Swiss canton, but the great Brenner route, which could confer both power and wealth on its possessor made the Tyrol an object of conquest to the feudal nobles of the early Middle Ages. Their hereditary dominion is now vested in the Archdukes of Austria, to whom the Tyrols had shown unfailing fidelity, but from whom they had exacted complete recognition of their rights. Tyrol's neighbor Switzerland illustrates the pure form of commune, canton and republic, which is the logical result of a rugged mountain relief. Here commune and canton are the real units of government. In the federal power at Bern the Swiss peasant takes little interest, often not even knowing the name of the national president, 
in the highest ranges a canton coincides with a mountain rim valley Valais with the basin of the upper Rhone, Glorus with the upper Linth, Uri with the Reuss, Grobwinden with the upper Rhine, to which is joined by many pass routes the sparsely peopled Ingadine, Ticino with the drainage basin of upper Lake Magyar, Enterwalden with the southern drainage valleys of Lake Lucerne, where the mountains are lower, or where passes connect valleys of high levels, cantonal boundaries may overstep geographical barriers. A commune generally consists of the villages strung along a narrow lateral valley, isolated and sufficient unto itself politically. A close parallel to the Alpine commune is found among the Kabyles of the Atlas Mountains. Their political structure is based upon the Jamaur commune, a small sovereign republic whose independence is fiercely defended. It enjoys complete local autonomy, is governed by an assembly of all the adult male inhabitants, and grants this body the usual functions except the administration of justice which, characteristically, is replaced by blood feuds as the inalienable right of the individual. Romans, Arabs, Turks and French have in turn exercised over these mountain Berbers only nominal control, except when their internal dissensions made them vulnerable. The mountains, by the segregating power of their ridges and ranges, first produce these little independent communities, and then, throwing around them strong protecting arms, enfold them in an embrace which long provides security to them in their weakness. These minute mountain states, therefore, tend to reflect in their size the isolation of their environment, and indirectly the weakness of the surrounding nations. The original suicide genocide scaft of the four forest cantons, embedded in the high Alps, braced against a mountain wall, held its own against the feeble feudal states of Austria and Germany. The rugged relief of Grobwinden and the spirit of freedom cradled there enabled its peasants in the Middle Ages to overthrow the feudal lords, and to establish a federal republic. This typical mountain state was a league composed of three other leagues. Each component league consisted of a group of districts, having the power of sovereign states, and consisting in turn of a group of communes, which were quite independent in local affairs. This triune league formed in time an alliance with the Swiss Confederation but did not become a member of it till the Vienna Adjustment of 1815. Similar is the story of the mountain shepherds of Openzell, who formed a little peasant republic, despite their bishop overlord of St. Gall, 